tonight, we're going to talk about Revelation's keys of death. And before we launch into this topic, I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads with me as we open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, tonight as we open the Bible together, we are praying for your Holy Spirit to be here. We ask that as we talk about this topic, Lord, I think everyone in this room has had some loved one pass away. And so it's a, it's a very sensitive topic. It, we, you know, it, our emotions can get caught up in it, but help us to understand what the Bible teaches. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I want to just start off by giving you a little bit of advice. And this is advice that the Bible shares too. As I grow older, I am keenly aware that it pays to ask someone who has been before you for advice about life, okay? So let me rephrase that. As I grow older, I am, be I am becoming more aware that it's good to consult older people for advice. Uh, and the Bible actually teaches this. It says, wisdom is with the who? The aged, uh, with the aged men, and with length of days, understanding. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but when I was younger, I didn't ask my parents for, for much advice. I didn't feel like they, they could understand. As I get older, and I think back to the tidbits of things that they've shared with me over the years, I understand now. It's like, ah, I get it. Okay, this makes sense. You know, there is one subject that no older person can give you any advice about. Because that subject is the subject of death. And you know why they can't give you advice? Because nobody has experienced death and then come back from it. Does that make sense? Nobody has, has done that. So I just want to say that this is the only exception when it comes to finances, marriage, education, someone that has been, you know, older than you, that has experienced life ahead of you, they can give you some help. But this is the one topic that they can't help you with. However, you know, when you look at the world today, there are so many theories out there about what death is like. And I don't need to tell you that there are people that claim that they can talk to people that are dead, you know, psychics and this kind of thing. And uh, I don't know if you know, the percentage of them being right, psychics, is only like 8%. I remember I saw uh, a documentary where they had a person that was missing, and they consulted a psychic, and she claimed that they were still alive, when in reality, they were dead. So the percentage of them being right is actually quite low. Now, <clears throat> I want you to know that the Bible teaches that there is one person who has experienced death and come back. Notice what Jesus said here in Revelation 1 verse 18. He says, I am he who what? Lives and was what? Dead. And behold, I am what? Alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of what? Hades and death. Hades, of course, here referring to the grave. Now, folks, do you notice that Jesus, please notice this, Jesus was dead. He experienced, he tasted death for every man. And the Bible says that Jesus is alive. So does it make sense that Jesus understands what it's like to be dead? He understands that from experience. And tonight, I want to share with you how Jesus feels about death. Because I want you to know that 
when we look at the way that Jesus relates to it, it's going to give us some insight into his character. Did you know that Jesus had a friend? His name, Lazarus. And he was a brother to two sisters, Mary and Martha. And he unfortunately did not make it to Lazarus's home before he passed away. He was sick. Jesus was called. But Jesus did not make it in time. And Lazarus was dead. Now, I want you to notice that when Jesus ultimately visited Lazarus, the Bible says that he wept. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. Jesus understood as the creator that man was not meant for death. In other words, this was his creation that had gone wrong. And so as Jesus stood by Lazarus's grave, he wept. In other words, he felt sorry. He felt badly for the effects that sin had upon this world and upon humankind. Tonight, I want to share with you the formula that God used when he made man. And here's what it looks like. This is Genesis 2, verse 7. The Bible says, the Lord God formed man out of what? The dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils. What did he breathe? The breath of life. And the Bible says man became a what, everybody? A living soul. Now, I want to just, just point out two things here. The first thing is that man was made from two things. He was made from the dust of the ground, or you could just say like carbon. You know, he was made from carbon. And then from the dust, God, the Bible says, breathed into his nostrils the breath of what? The breath of life. And now notice that when God did this, man did not get a soul. Did you notice that? It doesn't say that man got a soul. What does it say? He what? He became a living soul. Did you know that in the Bible, a soul is not something inside of you. You are a soul. Does that make sense? In other words, a soul is not something inside that escapes when you die. No. Rather, the Bible teaches that you are a soul, okay? And if we were to put the formula together, it's like this. You take dust, you add the life-giving power from God, the breath of life, and when you combine those two things, you have a living soul. Now, I just want to point something out. When you look at the opposite of life, when you look at the reverse, when you look at death, it's the exact opposite. Notice after Adam and Eve ate of the tree, this is what God pronounced to them, for dust you are and to what? Dust you shall return. Now, notice that this is really the opposite. God was telling them that once they sinned, they would die. And here's how Ecclesiastes described it. Here's what it says. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the what? The spirit will return to who? To God who gave it. Now, tonight, I want to spend a little time talking about this spirit that the Bible describes here. Because when we look at the Bible, this Hebrew word that is translated spirit is also translated into another English word. And I want to show that to you from the book of Job. Now, look closely. Job chapter 27, verse 3. Now, I don't know if some of you know this, but the book of Job is written as a poem. Did you know that? The book of Job is written as a poem. Did you know that Moses is the author? And did you know that scholars say this was the first book that he ever wrote before Genesis? Job was the first book, and he wrote it when he was doing the shepherding in Midian. During those 40 years, this is what he wrote. But you know what's interesting? 
Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry. English poetry, we rhyme words. You know that roses are red, violets are blue, daffodils are yellow, I love you. Like the blue and you, right? They rhyme. Well, Hebrew poetry doesn't do that. Hebrew poetry, it mirrors ideas. It, it rhymes ideas. So let me just read this to you. It's two stanzas, and here's what it says. All the while, my what? Breath is in me. Okay, so that's one stanza. The second stanza says, and the what? The Spirit of God is in my nostrils. Okay, so there's two stanzas. And remember what I said. They, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme words. It rhymes what? Ideas. It rhymes ideas. So these two sentences or these two stanzas, they are saying the same thing. Let's, let, let me see if I can ask you something. In the first stanza, it says, is in me. What's the same phrase in the second stanza? In my nostrils. Someone said it, but it's in my nostrils. Do you see that? Now, in the first stanza, it says, my breath. Did you see that? In the second stanza, what's the same expression as my breath? The Spirit of God. Now, this may sound new to you, but in the original Hebrew language, the word that is translated breath or spirit is the same word. It's the Hebrew word ruach, and it just means, it can mean wind, okay? Now, the reason I'm showing this to you is because when you go through the Bible, the Bible teaches that death is really creation in reverse. Here's what it says. For put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His what? His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. What substance does he go back to? To dust, right? In that very day, what happens to his thoughts? His thoughts, what happens to them? They perish. Now, folks, I want to just point something out. When a person dies, that formula when God made man, he took the dust of the earth, he breathed into his nostrils the what? The breath of life. But now, and the man becomes a living soul. But when man dies, what happens to the breath? It goes out. And then what happens to his body? It goes back into the dust, right? But notice something else that Psalms 146, verse 3 and 4 tell us. It says that in the day that man dies, what happens to his consciousness? His consciousness? It dies. His thoughts, what happen? They perish. Now, this may be a new idea to you, but did you know? The Bible is consistent on this teaching. And I want to show you something in Ecclesiastes 9. For the living know that they will die. Do we all know that, by the way? Yeah, we know we're mortal, right? But the dead know how much? Nothing. Now, folks, I want to be very clear here. The Bible does not say that your dead loved ones can tell you, like, the lottery numbers or where to go to school or who to marry. No. The Bible says that in the day that he dies, his thoughts perish. Or Ecclesiastes says the dead know how much? Nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their what? Love, their hatred, their envy is now what? So let's say that you bought a house. Let's say that the previous owner was murdered in the house. And I'm not telling you to do that. But, you know, let's just say that that happened. And then let's say that one day, like, strange things are happening. Is the owner back because, and he's, is he angry at you because you bought his house? No, the Bible teaches that the, the dead, they don't have any thoughts. Their emotions are what? They're gone. They don't have any feelings. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. So the Bible is pretty clear on what happens to man's condition in death and how much he knows. 
I want to read to you from Job chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. As the clouds disappear and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not what? He does not come up, the Bible says. He shall never return to his house, nor shall he place, no, nor shall his place know him anymore. According to the Bible, once a person dies, does something like hover up from the grave? Does, does their soul or their spirit, does it start flying around? No, the Bible says he does not what? He does not come up. That's what the Bible teaches. Let me read to you from John chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Now, this is a conversation between Jesus and Mary. And I want you to notice <clears throat> what he says to her. These things he said after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples, sorry, this is a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, and later we're going to get to Mary. Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his what? By the way, what did Jesus call death? He referred to it as a? Did you know that in the Bible, over, it's over 300 times the Bible refers to death as a sleep. It's very prominent in the Old Testament. When you look at the kings, he slept with his father, you know, slept. So it's talking about death. All right, let's go on. He was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, if we go on, Jesus said to her, I'm sorry, this is Martha, your brother will what? Rise again. Martha said to him, I know, now look closely, that he will rise again in the resurrection, which is when? At the last day. Now, this is very interesting because Lazarus had just died. And Jesus gave Martha hope. He said, Martha, he didn't say, Martha, Lazarus is looking down on us right now. He's in a better place. You should be happy. He didn't say that. He said, Martha, Lazarus is going to rise again someday. And Martha, being a good Bible student, she said, I know that he will rise in the resurrection, which is when? At the last day. Did you know that that's exactly what Paul said too? For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now notice this next sentence. And the what? The dead in Christ, what will they do? Rise first. Now when is this event? When is it that Jesus comes from heaven? There's a shout, there's the voice of an archangel, there's a trumpet. When is this? This is the second coming, folks. At the second coming, the Bible describes that the dead in Christ will be resurrected. I want to finish reading this passage for you. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with who? Now, I want to ask you, according to the Bible, when is it, at what event is it, that the righteous will be taken to be forever with Jesus. At what event? At the second coming. But please notice this next verse. This is verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with what? These words. Folks, if you follow the Bible, when you go to a funeral, you, you really should avoid saying things like, you know, I know that they're, they're looking down on us right now or, I know that they're in heaven, or I know that, you know, they're, they're in... You know, the Bible says, tell them that when Jesus comes, the dead will be resurrected. 
And if we're alive and we're ready to meet Jesus, then we're going to be caught up with them to meet Jesus in the air. And from that point on, we will forever be with Jesus. He's never going to leave us. We'll be with him for eternity. And comfort one another with what? These words. I don't know how many funerals you've been to, but I have been to my share. And I have discovered that almost always at a Christian funeral, when you go, the idea is always that the person is already in heaven. But Jesus didn't say that, and Paul didn't say that. In fact, when you go through history, you will find something very fascinating. If you ever visit Rome, I'm sure that you are aware that underneath Rome, they have these tunnels. They call them like the catacombs. I'm sure you've heard about this. And uh, you may know that in, those, in the time when they were occupied, when people died, they basically dug holes in the wall, and they secreted the bodies in those in those walls. And the pagans would say on the, like the, the, the stone, the tombstone, they would say things like, goodbye forever, uh, farewell for eternity, you know, this kind of thing. But the Christian graves were different. The Christian graves actually said, see you in the morning or see you again. You know, they, they had some hope. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus wanted us to understand. Now, I know that some of you are sitting here tonight, and even if you're watching this, you may have heard of the idea that man is innately immortal. Not his body, but his soul is immortal. But you know, when the Bible talks about immortality, it never talks about an immortal soul together. Those words are never found together in the Bible. In fact, the Bible in, instead tells us that only one being has immortality. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy 6.15. It says, who alone has what? Immortality, dwelling in an unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Friends, do you realize that the Bible is teaching us that only God has immortality? What does that mean? If you want immortality, you have to have God. Does that make sense? Without God, you cannot have immortality. Now, let's review something that we learned at the beginning. The Bible does not teach that man's soul is innately immortal. The Bible doesn't teach that. Instead, the Bible teaches that a soul is the dust of the earth plus the breath of life, and man becomes, he doesn't get, he becomes a soul. In fact, did you know the Bible teaches that a soul can die? Here's what it says in Ezekiel 18.4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins, he shall what? That's just another way of saying the person who sins, what's going to happen to them? They're going to die. That's what the Bible is teaching. So notice Job is addressing this very question because this is what people have asked from the very beginning. What happens to people when they die? Here's what it says. So man lies down and does not what? Does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their what? Sleep. Again, Bible refers to death as a sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past. Make note of that, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. Now, what did we learn in these three verses? Well, the first thing is the Bible teaches that people are resting in the graves until the heavens pass away. 
And we learned a little bit about that in Revelation chapter 6 when we talked about the heavens passing away the, 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 uh, and Jesus comes. But we also learned that once the wrath of God is passed, then the resurrection of the righteous takes place. And then we learned that this is when our bodies will be changed. This is when the change from mortal bodies to immortal, immortal bodies takes place. Now, I want to show you from the book of Revelation how the Bible describes these events. Look closely. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. This is the wrath of God coming from heaven. This is when the wicked will cry out, let the rocks fall on us. And this is what the Bible is describing there in Job. And when you read 2 Peter, the Bible says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens will do what? Pass away with a great noise. This is describing the second coming. 1 Peter 3, verse 10. Oh, we already read that. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the what? The wrath of God is what? Complete. Now, if you read Revelation 15, you will discover that all of the seven plagues take place right before Jesus comes. So what is that telling us? We have the heavens departing as a scroll. We have the, the wrath of God being poured out upon the wicked. And then what happens? Then Jesus comes and the righteous are resurrected. Here's how 1 Corinthians 15 describes it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What does the word sleep refer to in this passage? Death, right? Because Paul knew that when Jesus comes, there would still be some righteous alive on the earth when he comes. But we shall all be changed. We're going to talk about what kind of change in just a moment. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last, what, what instrument? Trumpet. Now, again, if you've been with us, we've learned that at the second coming, there's going to be a shout. There's going to be the voice of the archangel. Jesus comes with the great sound of a trumpet. Here's what it says. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be what? Raised, but when they're raised, what kind of bodies do they come out with? Incorruptible. Can you imagine that? I don't know about you, but that's something that I look forward to. I have a, a dear, dear grandmother that I lost last year, and when she passed, her, her body was, it was frail. Her hearing was going, and she, was a, she, was a, she loved gardening. She was the best cook, and all of these attributes slowly kind of diminished as her she lost function in her body. But you know what the Bible teaches? That when Jesus comes, they will not be raised with the same frail bodies, but rather they will be raised how? Incorruptible, a new body, an immortal body. And, we sh and then the Bible says, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then, in other words, at that time shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Now, did you notice, when is this saying come true? When does this saying actually, when is it fulfilled? When? At the? at the second coming of Jesus, at the resurrection of the righteous. Okay, now here is how Philippians says it, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body 
that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. I want to ask you a question. When Jesus was resurrected and he appeared to his disciples, did the disciples, did they recognize him, yes or no? When they saw him, did they know it was Jesus? They did. Eventually they did, right? And did, they, did, did Jesus eat in front of them? He did. Do you remember he ate a fish and he ate honeycomb? Do you remember that? And why am I telling this to you? Because the glorified body is similar. I don't want to say it's the same, but just the fact that the disciples were able to see and recognize Jesus tells us that our glorified or immortal bodies will be similar, not the same, but similar. And there are still, you know, things like eating that are still involved. So this gives us some clue to what the immortal, uh, eternal bodies will be like. Now, Job 14 again, let's notice. So man lies down and does not what? Does not rise till the heavens are no more. When does that happen? At the, at the second coming. They will not be awake. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your what? Your wrath is past. When, when does that wrath, when is that poured out? That's at the when? The seven last plagues, right? Right before Jesus comes, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait until my what? What change? Yeah, from mortal to immortal body. That's what change uh, Job is talking about. Does that make sense? Now, this is what Martin Luther had to say. Scripture everywhere affords such consolation, which speaks of the death of the saints as if they were what? Asleep. Now, did you notice that Martin Luther did not teach that when people die, they are conscious that they can, you know, speak to you or they can come to you and comfort you. He didn't teach that. And that they were just asleep in the graves and awaited the what? The resurrection together with the saints who preceded them in death. Thus, after death, the soul goes to its bedchamber, to its peace, and while sleeping, it does not realize its sleep. Have you ever had this experience before? Have you ever had a hard day of physical labor? Let's say you were cleaning the house or you were gardening or something outside. And then in the evening, you have your supper, you take a hot shower, and then you put your head on the pillow, and the next thing you know, the alarm is ringing, the sun is streaming through the window, and it's 7 o'clock. Have you ever had that experience before? This is kind of the idea that the Bible gives us about what death is like. It is a time where we do not understand the passage of time. It's just like a sleep. The next thing we see would be the face of Jesus. We shall sleep until he comes and knocks on the little grave and says, Dr. Martin, get up. Then I shall rise in a moment and be happy with him, how long? Forever. So then you're probably sitting here tonight thinking, so where did we get this idea that when people die, you know, this ethereal part of them comes out and just starts floating around? Like, where did that come from? Well, if you really trace it back, there was a philosopher by the name of Plato. And without getting into all of this, Plato's ideas kind of influenced Christianity during a period when there was not a lot of Bible to study. 
And so that idea came into the church at that time, and in so doing, it became kind of an accepted idea among Christians, and that got passed on for many centuries. But, you know, <clears throat> there is one story in the Bible that has confused many Christians, and I want to read this, story, this verse to you. It's the story of the thief on the cross. Here's what Jesus, uh, here's what the thief said to Jesus as they were dying. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice this. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, Christians read that and they say, there it is. Jesus said that as soon as he died, he would be with him in paradise. So there's three problems with this. The first thing is that, first of all, Jesus did not set up his kingdom that day. Um, if you remember in our study in Daniel chapter 7, one of the things that we covered briefly, and, and then in Revelation 12 as well, is that Jesus does not receive his kingdom until the judgment finishes. So it would have been impossible for Jesus to invite the thief to be with him in his kingdom that day. Not only that, Jesus didn't go to heaven that day. Um, let me share with you how we know this. From John chapter 20, verse 17, this takes place on Sunday morning. Jesus said to Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet, what? Ascended to my father. Now, that's a little problem. Was Jesus lying to Mary or was he lying to the thief? No, Jesus didn't lie. But there's a reason why we assume that Jesus was saying to the thief, that he was with him that day. See, the thief didn't go to heaven that day. And let me explain how we know this. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, did you notice that the way that we read that is dependent on the punctuation of the passage? Just look closely. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. But I want you to notice what happens if we just make a little change, okay? Notice the change now. Assuredly, I say to you when? Today. Now, that's a huge difference. Let me see if I can show you how powerful punctuation can be. If your grandchild said to you, let's eat, Grandma, that would be a sign that they're hungry, right? But let's just not change anything, and let's just remove the comma. If the child said, let's eat grandma, what's different? That's cannibalism, right? You got that, right? So did you notice that this illustration is just to highlight punctuation makes a huge difference? Now, why am I sure that this passage is punctuated wrong? Well, first of all, in the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, both Old and New Testaments, in the original manuscripts, there is no punctuation. There's zero, okay? The second thing that you have to know is that when the translators received the original text and tried to translate it into the modern languages, at that point in church history, there were already preconceived ideas about what happens when you die. So when they said those things and they translated Luke 23, they put the punctuation where they felt it would make the most sense. But you know what the problem is? It, 
conflicts with every other part of the Bible's testimony on what happens when you die. I want you to imagine in your mind that you are building a fence on your ranch. Let's say that you lived in Wyoming, somewhere near Jackson Hole, and you had 1,200 acres that you were going to raise bison. So one day you're, you're out there with your tractor, it has an auger, and you're d- drilling holes, and then you're starting to put fence posts in, you put your quick crate, your water, and you're setting up all these fences so that you can put your barbed wire and you can make this enclose your bison. Well, you're about a quarter of a mile in your fence project, and somewhere along the way, there is this one fence post that's crooked. Now, you know this. <coughs> You can fix this in one of two ways. You can go to that one crooked one and you can like get your hammer and smash it into line with all the others. Or you can bend every straight post to match the crooked one. Now, why am I giving you this story? There is this verse in the Bible, this one that we just read. We already read that when man dies, he is what? He's asleep. He's just in the grave awaiting what event? He's waiting for the what? for the second coming. But if you read Luke 23, just because of this comma, people think, wait a minute. He said that he was going to be with him that day. But we already read that even to Mary, he said on Sunday morning, I have not yet what? Ascended to my father. So what are we going to do? Are we going to just twist every other verse in the Bible to match this idea? No. We have to look at it and say, what does the whole Bible teach? And then we realize the thief wasn't with Jesus that day. He was saying, he was saying, Jesus was saying to the thief, today, verily I am saying this to you today, today on this day when not even my own disciples think that I'm a king, even on this day when the priests and the people, they mock me and they deride me and they, they tell me to come down if I am truly a king. And today on this day when it seems like in the eyes of everyone, I'm an imposter, I am telling you today that you will be with me in paradise. He wasn't telling the thief that he was going to be with him that day. He was telling him on that day, he was promising him that while he had breath, while he had life, that his faith would be rewarded with a place in his eternal kingdom. That's what Jesus was promising the thief. Now, Christians also get caught up in this one passage in Paul's writing, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. Paul says, we are confident, yes, well-pleased rather, to be absent from the body, and to be present with the Lord. So people read this and they say, there you go. If you're absent from the body, then that means you're automatically with Jesus. But Paul doesn't contradict himself. We know the Bible doesn't contradict himself. Notice what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4. This is what he said. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of what? Of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me when? At that day. Now look closely. When is that day? And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his what? When did Paul expect to receive his reward? When? At the second coming, at the resurrection. Does that make sense? It's the same all throughout the Bible. Paul didn't think that when he died, he'd go straight to heaven. He knew that he would receive his reward at the second coming. You know, friends, at the very beginning, when God made man, he was meant to live forever. And because of sin, because man chose to disobey God, he cut himself off from the source of eternal life. 
But I want you to know that thanks to Jesus, who tasted the second death for every man, if we have faith in Jesus, we can meet Jesus again and spend eternity with him forever. Amen? And you know, maybe you have a loved one. Maybe you have someone that, I don't know what's happened. I think the power went out. I apologize. But maybe you have someone that you have lost to the grave. I know that you may have been taught your whole life. You may have been taught something like this, that they're in heaven looking down on you right now. now. I don't know if you thought about this, but do you realize that if they could look down and see you, do you realize the anguish and the agony that they might experience because they have to see the sufferings that are going on in this world? Do you realize what we read in the news, by the way, does the news ever get you discouraged? Like, do you read about things that are really, like, shocking and just horrible to read? But can you imagine if you could look down on planet Earth from heaven and see the unreported things, the dark crimes, the things that no human eyes maybe have seen except for a few, the, the cruelty and the, the, the suffering that goes on, could you really enjoy heaven in that Friends, I want you to know God's plan is the best. God's plan is that they are unconscious, asleep, in the graves, awaiting the day Jesus comes. This is a true story. There was a mother who had a young boy, five years old, that had a terminal illness. And I want to tell you, I had a seminar years ago in California. We had two twins. They had exactly the same hair color. They were identical twins, like exactly the same. The parents even dressed them up the same. You know, so like it was one of those things where you could never, and they would play jokes on people all the time. But one of these two twins had a ravaging tumor in his brain. I mean, just ravaging from the meeting, from when I met him, it was only a matter of months, and he was dead. But this mother, I kind of digress there, but this mother had a five-year-old son that had a terminal illness. And so he asked his mother, he said, Mother, what will death be like? How do you answer that to a child? You know, how, do you, how do you say something like that? So this is what she said. She said, you know, son, have you ever noticed that when we go on car trips and you get sleepy, you fall asleep in the back of the car? And when you wake up, you're in a different place because daddy has brought you from the car and placed you in your bed. And you know, folks, you know, in a simple way, this is really what death is like. It's a moment of sleep before our Heavenly Father comes to take us home. And so as we close tonight, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me for the hope that we have in Jesus of an eternal life with him. Father in heaven tonight, every one of us in here, I believe everyone, has had someone that we have loved that has passed away. It's my prayer that we can have faith in Jesus that he is a righteous and fair judge, that 
when that resurrection morning comes, when Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, that we can anticipate that that loved one will rise from the dead in Christ. And until that day, keep us faithful so that we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. May these promises, these words of Scripture give comfort to everyone in here tonight and to those that are watching. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray.